she lay still, in a kind of sleep, always in a kind of sleep. The activity, the orgasm was his, all his. She could strive for herself no more. Even the tightness of his arms around her, even the intense movement of his body and the springing of his seed into her, was a kind of sleep, from which she did not begin to rouse until he had finished and lay softly panting against her breast. Oh, you caught me reading a dirty story. How naughty of you. Actually, that was a portion of Lady Chatterley's Lover by D. H. Lawrence, a book that has been quite controversial since its publication and suffered at the hands of censors from all over the world. Here at Screaming Eye Press, we're very serious about censorship. That is why we have put together horrible little stories, stories they don't want you to read. A collection of horror and dark fantasy stories by Joe Lansdale, G. L. Razor, Elizabeth Massey, Jack Dan, Richard Christian Matheson, G. Wayne Miller, Ray Garten, and more. All proceeds will be donated to the anti-censorship foundation thefire.org. You don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. Just get people to stop reading them. Ray Bradbury Look, if you don't like this commercial, just shut it off, for fuck's sake. Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, oh, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. <sighs> Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is Daddy-O. Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Roxbrocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour. And now there's... Yeah? Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! Whoa! Dad, this looks awesome! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome. You definitely have that right, my good man. Ha <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Mary. My pleasure, Billy. And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye. Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine, available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere, or at Amazon.com, or ScreamingEyePress.com. That is S-C-R-E-A-M-I-N-G-E-Y-E-P-R-E-S-S.com.
The Litter by James Kisner Harriet had been acting strange all afternoon. She would run sideways with her back humped up at the least provocation, and she'd hiss and spit at anyone who came too close to her. I know cats are ambivalent creatures with changeable natures, but Harriet was usually very affectionate and playful. She would even let our two kids, a six-year-old and a three-year-old, pull her tail and roughhouse with her for hours at a time without giving the least evidence she was displeased with their handling of her. This Indian summer day in early October, however, Harriet seemed to have the devil in her. I was about ready to pack her off to the vet when little Ted pointed out something to me that should have been obvious if I'd been more observant. Harriet is real fat, Ted said, pointing to the cat's sides. She was pregnant. Her first time, too, which is probably why I didn't consider that a possible explanation for her erratic behavior. Harriet's going to have kittens, I told my son. That's why she won't let us touch her. Do you understand? Ted put his finger in his nose and shook his head. <laughs> his big sister Pam nodded wisely. Harriet is going to be a mother, she said seriously. What a responsibility. I laughed and went into the house to tell my wife all about it. I knew we waited too long to get Harriet fixed, Jean said as she loaded the dishwasher. Now we'll have to find homes for a passel of cats. Oh, it's not so bad, I said, admiring the view I was getting of Jean bending over. At thirty-five, Jean maintained her figure and made me the envy of a lot of other men in the neighborhood whose wives were beginning to look uh, frumpy. Her auburn hair and greenish eyes contributed to the overall effect of a woman who was becoming more beautiful with maturity. She stood up and turned to face me. I was sitting at the kitchen table, sipping a lukewarm diet root beer. You know, I don't even recall her going into heat, she said. I wonder who the father is. There are a lot of strays wandering around here, I said. And Harriet's a good looker. It wouldn't be hard for her to catch a man. Oh, don't be silly, Jean said, kissing me lightly on the cheek. I think you have sex on your mind constantly. Are you complaining? Jean just smiled. How about some grilled cheese sandwiches for dinner? I don't feel like fixing a big meal. All right, but about Harriet, uh, don't you think it'll be an educational experience for the kids to witness the miracle of birth? She grimaced. I don't think they're old enough yet, especially Teddy. Well, maybe we should take the cat to the vet. Oh, that's ridiculous. When I was growing up, I saw animals being born all the time. There's no need to shelter the kids so much. But you grew up on a farm, Ted. Pam already knows where babies come from. 
I think she'll feel cheated if she doesn't get to see the big event. I don't even want to see it myself. I was about to present a very convincing argument to her when Pam ran into the room. She was excited and out of breath. Daddy, Harriet's making a mess in the basement. Hurry up or you'll miss it. Too late, I said. Okay, Pam, show me where Harriet is. The cat had made a nest of some dirty clothes in the corner of the basement a few feet behind the furnace. I winced because part of the nest was one of my favorite everyday shirts. Little Ted was standing close to the nest, his eyes wide open. Ted, go upstairs and see Mommy. Harriet have babies? Uh, yes, Ted, but uh, you shouldn't watch. Uh, Mommy says you're too young. I looked at Pam, who had a look of fierce determination. There was no way I would get her to leave, but I thought I should try in order to save myself an argument later. Pam, you take Ted up to the kitchen. I want to see. Okay, I sighed, but take him upstairs first. Then you can come back if Mommy lets you. She took her little brother by the hand and wordlessly led him up the stairs. I expected Ted to protest, but he seemed confused about what was going on and not all that curious. I approached the cat cautiously and bent down to see if any kittens had been born yet. The light was dim in that area of the basement, but I could make out at least two writhing forms struggling to get to Harriet's teeth. Harriet was a yellow cat with a little white on her underbelly, but the two kittens were grayish-looking. I watched three more come out quickly, and then the afterbirth flowed out. Harriet looked up at me and seemed to be pleading. Don't glare at me, I said. I didn't get you into this. Pam had returned. Oh, I missed it, she said. Well, it's all over. Uh, you'd better... What's that? She pointed to the afterbirth. It's gross. I couldn't think of a ready explanation. I turned to Pam, stooped down to be face to face with her, and laid my hands on her shoulders. When animals have babies, I said, not knowing where I was going, they, uh, oh, really gross, she said, adding a couple of extra syllables to the word gross, which had lately become one of the most common used words in her vocabulary. I looked back, expecting to see Harriet doing what came naturally to many animals. Instead, I saw something I wasn't prepared for at all. The kittens were eating the afterbirth. That is gross, I agreed. After taking Pam up to her mother, I returned to the basement for another look. This time, I plugged in my trouble light and held it over Harriet's nest. The pupils of the cat's eyes almost instantly turned into tiny black dots. 
I was aware of a strange odor that's best described as a mixture of urine, blood, and decay. I tried to breathe through my mouth and crouched down, getting as close to the nest as I dared. The afterbirth was gone. There were five animals in the litter, but I wouldn't call them kittens. The gray color I had guessed at earlier turned out to be the color of their skins, because not one of them had any fur at all. Their eyes, which should have been closed, were all open wide and pinkish in color. They had no tails, but they did have little claws. <laughs> God, they didn't look like cats. They looked more like ugly, hairless moles. Harriet hadn't bothered to lick them clean, either, and they were caked with crusty blood. Mutations, I thought, slimy little bastards. That's why Harriet hadn't cleaned them. She would probably kill them when she realized what they were. One of them was on its back, gaping at the ceiling with its feet thrashing wildly, as if it couldn't turn itself back over. Its mouth was wide open, and I noticed it possessed large teeth, more like those of an adult animal than a kitten. They were sharp. My stomach was protesting. I, I thought I was going to lose my lunch any second. Ted, come up here, Jean yelled down the stairs. George wants to see you. Can't it wait? We've got a real mess down here. He said it's important. He seems upset. Damn. Okay, I'm coming. I took the stairs two at a time and met Jean at the top. Whatever you do, don't let the kids go down there. I don't want to go into it right now, but Harriet has given us a present we don't want, and it's not a dead mouse. What? I appraised her mood and added, You better not go down there either. You won't like it a bit. George was our next-door neighbor. We lived in a subdivision where all the houses have aluminum siding and two-car garages. There were no fences, and the homes were built close together, so you'd learn to get along with your neighbors. George was a good guy, though. He was an engineer at one of the local electronics companies. I'm an accountant, and I help George with his taxes every year, so we don't have many secrets between us. He was waiting for me in front of his garage, one door of which was up. The station wagon had been backed out onto the driveway. George looked uneasy. He was sweating despite it being only fifty outside. He was about my age, almost forty, and his hair was starting to turn gray. He was in excellent physical condition and jogged every morning to maintain his weight and stay fit. I often kidded him about his running, because I kept healthy without having to exert myself. What's up, George? I asked. Jesus, Ted, you won't believe it. C come in here and tell me what do you think of this. He took me inside the garage and directed me to a corner where his Dalmatian bitch was lying. 
She was stretched out on a dirty old sleeping bag and whimpering softly. I could also hear the high-pitched whining of something else that was with her, uh, a litter of, uh, no, not puppies. Look at those goddamn things, George said. Did you ever see anything like that in your life? I had. The animals to which the Dalmatian had given birth were exactly the same as the litter Harriet had delivered. They were slightly larger, but otherwise exact duplicates. There were eight of them. I don't know much about biology, but I do know certain things are supposed to be impossible. Cats have kittens. Dogs have pups. Damn it! That's the way things are supposed to happen. All kinds of ideas went through my mind, none of them offering any real acceptable answers to what I was seeing. Was it because of air or water pollution? Radiation? Something supernatural? Something from outer space? I shook my head. I don't believe in all that kind of nonsense. I believe in numbers and science, at least as much of it as I can understand. If it doesn't compute, it can't happen. George, I said, I may be going out of my mind, but I think this litter looks just like the one Harriet had. Your cat? Yeah. Do you think that's possible? Are you trying to kid me? If so, I'm not in the mood. All right, I'll show you. Uh, have you got some gloves out here? What for? I'm going to pick one of the little bastards up, and we'll compare them with my uh, kittens. That's a starting point, at least. He gave me a pair of heavy leather work gloves. I was able to lift one of the animals away from the rest without disturbing the dog, who really didn't seem to care. I didn't blame her. Looking at the creature closely now, I could see just how ugly it really was. The skin was not only hairless, it was scaly. The strangest thing I noticed, though, was that it had no navel. Thinking back, I realized the cat's offspring had no umbilical evidence either that I could remember. There had been no cord anywhere. Let's go. I said, holding the slimy thing out in front of me to get away from the smell as much as possible. Maybe we can figure this thing out together. I'm coming, but I don't like it a bit, George said. You know, Ted, this is really the goddamnedest thing. What's that? We had that dog spayed last spring. Jean stayed clear of us as we came into the kitchen to get to the basement. Her face was pale as she saw what I held in my gloved hands, but she said nothing. It was obvious she had seen the litter despite my having warned her not to. I don't know why she didn't ask me about the thing in my hands. Maybe she was too stunned. I don't know what we're going to do, but why don't you take the kids and go visit someone? She nodded without saying a word. I think she was glad to have an opportunity to leave. Now give me a couple hours, I said. Better yet, call before you come home, just in case. 
But what are you... I told you, I don't know. I tried to sound like I was in control of the situation, but was failing to impress Jean or myself. Something inside me was churning. Uh, perhaps some instinctual recognition of things gone wrong, of nature turned topsy-turvy or inside out. I sensed an underlying urgency to our finding out what was going on here exactly. I went ahead of George down into the basement and directly to the nest. Harriet had left her offspring. I couldn't blame her for that. I laid the pup next to the five kittens. What did I tell you, George? There's not a damn bit of difference. Except yours are a little bigger, George said. He looked unhappy, scared. This doesn't make any sense. I know it. That's weird. You said mine are bigger, and they are. But they were smaller when I left them. Come on, Ted. They wouldn't grow in ten minutes. Well, it's not my imagination. I tell you, they're bigger. I looked down at the squirming mass of ugly, scaly things, which were now even more slimy and gore-encrusted than before. I bent closer and noticed one of them was gnawing on something. It was a piece of meat with fur on it. I reached out and flipped one of the things over and saw more bits of meat, which the others immediately descended on. I pulled apart some of the rags and clothing that made up the nest and found something I was hoping I wouldn't find at all, at least not there. It was not the rest of Harriet, her head which had been stripped of flesh down to the bone, her tail in one paw. Her eyes had been spared for some reason, and they stared back at me accusingly. Why did you leave me alone? they asked. That was too much. I turned away and threw up, heaving mightily all over the floor, splattering George's shoes and legs. George jumped away from me, lost his balance, and fell into the nest. One of the animals attached itself to his bare arm at once, biting him almost to the bone. God damn, George howled. Get this son of a bitch off me. I recovered quickly and pulled myself together enough to help pry the thing from George's skin as he scrambled up from the nest. I squeezed the beast in my right hand as hard as I could. It kept trying to wriggle around and bite me. Fortunately, I still wore the heavy gloves George had given me, or the thing would have had a piece of me. For something no bigger than a gopher, the creature was amazingly strong. I couldn't hold it any longer and dropped it on the floor. Without even thinking, acting on an instinct I had never before exercised, I crushed it under my foot, grinding it into the cement with all my weight. It went pop, like some kind of obscene balloon. Now it was George's turn to be sick. I lifted my foot and stared down at the smudge on the floor, an iridescent green-gray spot of shivering slime ooze, with a head that still snapped and moved. Gradually, the amorphous blob rearranged itself and assumed its former shape, 
more or less. George was finished heaving now. Christ, Ted, what are we going to do? You saw what happened, didn't you? I came down on it with all my weight. Oh, God, they ate Harriet Jesus, ate the cat. Can't kill. Uh, I was a half step away from hysteria. Come on, snap out of it, Ted. George was shaking, too. They ate the cat, George. Don't you understand that? What do you think the ones in your garage are doing right now? Good God, I hope I'm not too late. He ran up the basement steps, tripping over his own feet two or three times. After he was gone, I was almost scared out of my skin by the sound of glass breaking behind me. When I turned to investigate, I saw two of the creatures up on the shelves where we kept the fruits and vegetables we canned each year. They had managed to push over a quart of tomatoes and break it open. The jar lay on its side, slowly draining its contents. And while one of them attempted to overturn another jar, the other burrowed into the tomatoes. In the context of the moment, it appeared as if it were gnawing and wriggling through gore. And as it dug through the pulpy meal, its hind legs splattered tomato grew on my face. I was momentarily sickened, but somehow gained control of myself. How the hell had they gotten up there? Unless they could fly. Oh, that thought jolted me. They might sprout wings any minute. That does it, I said to the animals. I had to do something now. I kept a small trash can next to my workbench, which I knew would hold them all. I dumped the wood shavings and sawdust out of it and returned quickly to the nest. Shock waves of nausea rippled through me and the blood throbbed in my temples as I picked the two creatures off the shelves and lifted the others from the nest one by one and dropped them into the can. It was like handling chunks of putrid meat. They smelled so bad, and their odors seemed to increase with their size and their apparently growing hunger. Yes, they had grown larger within minutes. They were still smaller than normal kittens would have been, but the increase was noticeable. It was not something I was imagining, was it? I also had to contend with the remains of Harriet, and suddenly the loss of the cat seemed like the worst thing that had ever happened to me in my entire life. Tears came, and I realized I was no longer acting rationally. Again, as if I were being driven by instincts and emotions I didn't know existed within me. What the hell would I tell the kids? What would I tell Jean? I found myself obsessed with counting then. I decided I should count the things several times to make certain I had them all. There were five from my original litter, plus the one I brought over from George's batch. Well, that made six. Six, yes, I told myself. There are six in this can. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six, damn it. Count them slowly. B 
be sure you have them all. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, well, did I count that one twice? Uh, six things. One dog, uh, no, cat, six things. Two kids, uh, one wife, six... Uh, George will count them for me again. Uh, he'll be glad to. I was becoming too fuzzy-thinking and bleary-eyed to know what I was doing. I had to get out of there quickly, or somehow I thought those things would overpower me. I felt my will gradually weakening when I stared into the can at the squirming things and knew abruptly yet another new emotion, the desire to kill. I slammed the lid on the can and wrapped a couple of pieces of duct tape over it to keep the things inside until I could make it to George's garage. George stood outside waiting for me. Without asking, I knew he had failed to save his dog. He looked helpless. What have you got there? he asked in a low voice. What the hell do you think I have? I've got them. So what are you going to do? We've got to do something quick, George. We have to destroy them before they get too big. Don't you see that? We don't have any choice. He stared at the spot on his arm where he had been bitten. It was already swollen, and it dripped with a greenish, pus-like substance that smelled of decay. Hurts, George said. I know it hurts. We'll get you to a doctor just as soon as we take care of these things, okay? Are you listening to me? He gave me a blank look as if he didn't understand. I set the can down, grabbed him by the shoulders, and shook him. Come to your senses, George. You've got to help me. Hey, hey, leave me alone. He broke free of my grip and sat down on the ground next to the garage, covering his face with his hands as he kind of folded into himself. What's the use? I never knew you were such a goddamn wimp, I said. Under other circumstances, I would have been immediately ashamed of myself for treating a good friend so harshly, but my reactions weren't entirely my own. I was afraid and angry, but my anger wasn't directed only at the creatures and the hell they had wrought. It was focused specifically on George, as if he were somehow personally to blame for what had happened. Perhaps his injury had affected his reason, or the shock of losing his prized Dalmatian. It didn't really make any sense, because he was useless to me at that moment. I can't go in there, he whimpered. I left him slumped outside and took the can into the garage, where I confronted the other litter and half a dog. I burned them. I doused the little bastards in gasoline and lit them, and by that means I discovered their sole virtue. They were highly inflammable. I made a pile of them behind George's garage and ignited them. I counted them, of course. Thirteen little fireballs that made no sound at all as they burned. God, I hope I never have to do anything like that again. One of our neighbors called in because 
I had violated a local ordinance against open burning. By the time the fire marshal arrived, there was nothing left but a charred spot on the ground. There weren't even any bones. After a few minutes, the odor of burnt sulfur had totally dissipated, too. It's been a few weeks now, and things have returned to fairly normal. George doesn't speak to me very often, but I know he'll get over it. He's getting better every day, and I can see he's beginning to regain movement in his arm. I don't know what he did with the carcass of the Dalmatian. I'm not ready to ask him. Jean told our kids the cat died in childbirth, and the kittens had to be put to sleep. They seem to be accepting that explanation, though I'm not sure Pam really believes it. I refuse to elaborate and have promised them a new pet soon, another cat, if that's what they want. Of course, even Jean doesn't know the full story. Her eyes are always questioning me. Maybe someday I'll tell her everything, when it's all at a comfortable enough distance from reality for me to talk about it without breaking down. Looking back, I realize I should have saved one of the creatures to show someone. If I had been rational, I would have kept one and called the newspapers or television people. Instead, I destroyed them mindlessly, and the memories of the awful emotions I had that day have been the hardest to eradicate. For a while, I worried about the possibility of other litters. I even heard that a family a couple of blocks away had a German shepherd that produced a litter of deformed puppies. I contacted the people, but they refused to say anything. I can't say that I blame them very much. I also expected to see something in the papers or on TV. It was the kind of thing you'd normally find plastered in headlines all over the supermarket tabloids, but I have yet to find a story in any of them about strange animal litters. Nothing but the usual run of UFO babies and two-headed cows. I guess what happened in our neighborhood was an isolated event. Of course, I wonder about the animals in the woods just north of our subdivision. There are a lot of raccoons up there, and rabbits, and opossums. If any of them gave birth to weird critters, it would be a while before anyone discovered it. I try to keep such thoughts out of my mind, and I succeed most of the time. I have more important things to occupy me. Jean's pregnant. She's due any day now. The doctor says it might be twins. While traveling home from a job interview in California, Mark and Allie Thurston suffer a car accident in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. Allie, are you all right? After walking for miles to the nearest convenience store, they are greeted by Hap, the store owner, who invites them to stay the night in his home. Me and my son would be glad to have you. When the two announce their plans to stay in a nearby hotel and restaurant, the Old Tawan Buffet, Hap does his best to dissuade them, but when they insist, he leaves them with a strange warning. Don't eat the calamari. When the warning goes unheeded, Mark and Allie are plunged headlong into a cosmic nightmare. Mark! Mark! What's happening to me? Giants, 
frogmen, time travel, and interdimensional madness. Now you die, your alley dies, your old man dies, I find your home, all of your friends die. All of which concludes in a battle against an ancient evil. You will bow before the mighty Dion Dega. Together they must find a way to preserve their lives, their sanity, and perhaps even their world. Part love story and part comedy. Perfect for fans of Ghostbusters and Cloverfield. The Old Talon Buffet by Wesley Critchfield is a deep dive into Lovecraftian horror that will keep you in suspense and make you want to come back for seconds. Great. I've woken up in the middle of a British Three Stooges routine. More like Gilbert and Sullivan, I should think. No, Monty Python's far more my speed. The Old Talon Buffet, or Don't Eat the Calamari by Wesley Critchfield. Read it now on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Audiobook version coming soon at audible.com.